Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, a typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of December 28th, 2015. On our final show of the year, we're going to do a little time traveling. First, we're going into the future, because we're recording this on December 22nd, not December 28th, so we can take New Year's week off for a period of silent reflection. But more materially, we're going to be traveling back to a time long, long ago, bringing you three segments from the distant past. First, Mike Pesca will take us to Super Bowl One, and we'll assess whether Pro Football's championship game will become something bigger and better than it was in 1967. Then Stefan will lead a conversation about the recording just unearthed of basketball inventor James Naismith, and we'll be joined for that discussion by University of Kansas professor Michael Zagrai and Sports Illustrated writer Alexander Wolf. Finally, I will talk about the greatest boxing match that never happened, a championship fight between Muhammad Ali and Rocky Marciano. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello from the future, Stefan. Hi, Josh. It's good to be in the future. What's, how's the weather? Excellent. The weather in the future is perfect. Wow, we really so, we really solved perfect. all this. In spite problems. of climate change, the weather in the future is perfect. The fire inside, delightful. <laughs> with us from New York is Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's Daily Podcast, The Gist with Mike Pesca. Hey, Mike. Hi, and we're with Mike Pesca. How are you guys? Should we do some uh, some whimsy watch from the future? <laughs> yeah. What did you What did you notice? <laughs> <laughs> Odell Beckham Jr. He had a drone flying over the stadium. Drop down onto Josh Norman's head. 
Which and, is weird, since they weren't even playing each to, other, yeah. Well, but he went to the, the Panthers game. That was the crazy thing. He was He's barred from the Giants. Yeah. Not for the Panthers. Went to the Panthers game. I admired his uh, crazy Kwanzaa shoes. I thought that was pretty cool touch. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And uh, his pregame Kwanzaa cleats. Yeah, pregame Kwanzaa. And but really, who could have saw the Giants losing on a last second drive? That was the crazy thing. Okay, it is now time to begin our history show. And here with our first segment is Mike the Gist Pesca. History. I take you back to 1967. Lyndon Johnson was in the White House. The number one song of the year was To Sir With Love. The number six song of the year was Light My Fire. And the number five song of the year was I'm a Believer. A gallon of milk cost a little over a dollar, which adjusted for inflation is a lot more than a gallon of milk costs now. A gallon of gas costs 33 cents, which adjusted for inflation is exactly how much it costs now, $2.34. But in the beginning of that year, a game was played. It was called the AFL-NFL Championship Game. Some people showed up, not many. The top ticket price was $12, which adjusted for inflation is $85. So we're going back. We're pretending that it is 1967. And we're going to debate as if this game has just happened. It's late January of 1967. And the three of us on a radio show, so crank up the old RCA, and gather around as three guys debate, will this championship game that they just played between the Packers and the Chiefs have legs? And here we go. So what do you guys think? Uh, it was a bad game. We knew it would be a bad game. The, uh, the spread was 14, but as predicted, the Packers would not have any trouble with the Chiefs, and they didn't, 35-10. to 10. It was just a general lack of drama, and I think it was one of those things where everyone beforehand said, you know, the real championship game is uh, Cowboys-Packers, Cowboys won, and they were professional. They obviously crushed the Chiefs, but there's nothing in the playing of this game that argues that this is going to be an interesting institution going forward. But your your thoughts? Well, I think one way you can evaluate is by looking at the TV ratings. And as we all know, college football is more popular than pro football. That's kind of the prevailing wisdom. You've got all the bowl games on New Year's Day, and that overshadows anything that either of these um, professional football leagues can do. At least that's what that's what people w- would want to tell you. Um, the TV ratings for the NFL championship that you were just talking about, uh, Mike, with the uh, Cowboys and the Packers, that outrated the Rose Bowl, the granddaddy of them all. Wow. I guess we'll have to start calling uh, the NFL championship game the daddy of them all. The daddy because bowl. It, that's it, good. Yeah. The daddy. <laughs> I like that name. Yeah. And I they think, can even have a stick. Proc, uh, provocative television commercial uh, about the daddy bowl. Whereas wherein an actress might show an ankle. <laughs> Go daddy. Go daddy. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good idea. Okay. So the NFL championship barely outrated the Rose Bowl. And, you know, they both lost to Bonanza and Green Acres, but those are Bonanza Can't, and Green Acres. On. So, but, but I think people are not taking into account that the AFL NFL championship game was broadcast by both CBS and NBC. It's kind of an awkward arrangement. It's one right. that we, you know, haven't seen before. Probably one that we won't. See again, but if you combine the ratings for both CBS and NBC, it kind of did a monster, hmm. monster number. It adds up to about you know fifty million people watching. So a quarter of the population—that's not bad. Yeah, I mean more than the Bob Hope Christmas Show, uh, more than the Cinderella no. special on CBS. On. I mean more than Bonanza. Wow. 
So, so you're saying um, it was a ratings bonanza. <laughs> I'm saying it was a ratings bonanza. But I think you have to also look at actual fan interest in the game. Yeah, it's a curiosity. These two leagues have been going at it for a while now. We've started to see some players migrate from the upstart AFL over to the NFL. Pete Gogolak, the kicker, recently moved over to the to the New York Giants. Interesting that it started with a kicker. Who yeah. would have anticipated that the war between the NFL and the And not just a kicker, one of these weird side kickers, <laughs> the soccer guys. I mean, that's just crazy. We're starting to see these leagues agree on things. Pete Gogolak jumped over from the AFL to the NFL, from the Bills to the, to the New York Giants. That emboldened the players. We're seeing fighting among these leagues, but they need to find a way to, to stop this because there is clearly some market potential here if these two organizations stop fighting. They've agreed to merge. And that's a huge step. So the, the this big game, the Daddy Bowl, as we're calling it, I think is a step forward. Whether fans are going to want to show up to watch it, though, they're going to have some work to do. The L.A. Coliseum, giant venue, right, guys? Only about a third of the seats were sold for this game. And maybe that's because the prices were so high at $12. But maybe that's just because... This really was kind of uh, an anomaly that it was that they tried to trump it up and, and make it seem like it was more exciting than it really was. And they really did do that. I mean, you saw the halftime show, Al Hurt. I love Al Hurt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was great. All I thought that stops. was a great halftime show. Nice idea, right, to get some entertainment, some real entertainment going in, in the middle of the game. Um, but whether fans are going to want that kind of glitz and glamour, I'm not convinced. Look, I first of all, I just wanted to go back. I mean, we all saw the Bob Hope Christmas show, and I'm obviously Bo- Joey Heatherton killed. But I think some of the some of the jokes are getting old. Like when Bob said to Joey, "How'd you learn to wiggle and waggle like that?" And Joey said, "Your golf swing." I know it got a laugh from the troops. I thought a better joke was when Bob Hope said to the troops, "You know, there in Vietnam, I just want you to know the country's behind you fifty percent." So Hope still got it. So what I'm saying is that's maybe a bad comparison. Mm-hmm. But I think mm-hmm. what you're talking about about the the merger of these two leagues. That's the only reason why there could be some hope. The the other league has to get better. The AFL has to get better. So maybe the NFL, as the joint leagues are going to be called, maybe they'll just make the AFL better. You know, it seems like I think mm-hmm. it was a fairly smart move to absorb the rival and everyone will get richer. And so one day, and maybe they'll even move teams into the AFL. And so one day, 10 years from now, the daddy ball, 20 years from now, there'll be this lack of distinction between what the NFL and the AFL is. But unless they do that, the Packers, the the quality of football, it doesn't make any sense to have the penultimate game being you just have baked it in that it will be the ultimate in football. There just can't be an AFL team that's going to come along to challenge the supremacy of a team like the Packers or the Colts or the Cowboys. I disagree. I think that the only way that this game becomes something bigger than it is today is if the leagues stay separate. I think the merger is a mistake. Oh, so um, yeah, that's a decent point. It's a it's a curiosity then. If you put everything together into one NFL, these teams are all going to be playing each other during the regular season. Um, you know, it'll basically just be like what the NFL championship game is today, except you just add in a bunch more crappy teams. It's like it's not anything different. Like the promise of the NFL AFL championship game only comes if the AFL stays separate and becomes better. And I think people will enjoy watching the AFL, you know, try to take a shot 
at the NFL every year. People love an underdog. We yeah. all know that. Yeah. And, you know, in baseball, if the leagues combined in baseball and you had all the teams playing every year, nobody would, you know, want to watch the World Series. The only reason that the World Series is interesting is because you get to see the Dodgers and the Yankees, yeah, these games uh, that you don't, I don't know, watch Josh, during the regular but year. the AL and the NL in baseball have a long, long history, 70 years. I mean, this goes back a long time, 60 years for what we now call the World Series. So... I'm not sure that, that that's the case. I think, look at basketball's doing just fine. Um, the Celtics have had a great run. The Lakers have come along. There's some good teams in basketball, and they all play in the same league. There's no distinction there. But I, I don't see how they're going to bring these leagues together in a short enough time that makes the, 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 the at least for now, makes this, this game relevant. I mean, if these two leagues stay apart, I mean, look, an AFL team isn't going to make it to this daddy bowl once these leagues merge for a long, long time. And I don't see an AFL team beating an NFL no, they'll team. They'll make it. They'll make it. You're long, saying long they're not going to win it. Yeah, yeah. You're saying they're no, not no, going to no. win it. No, no, no. Once we get to this merger business, I don't think any of the teams that the NFL absorbs oh, from the old AFL are going to be there at the end. Well, maybe, you know, Obviously, Lombardi is a great, great coach, you know, possibly the greatest coach since Paul Brown. I know it's anathema to say that, but I think there's decent evidence there. But maybe innovative coaching will come into play. I mean, this young Hank Stram guy, he, he, he seems he's not as smart as Lombardi, but let's say a more traditional coach uh, gets his team out of the NFL. Let's say Bart Starr ages. All that stuff happens. Maybe a passing attack. The AFL loves to pass. I think that there's a future in that. You know, the NFL traditionalists will always say you got to keep it on the ground. And sure, of course, most of your plays have to be on the ground if you want to win in uh, the National Football League. But in the American Football League, I don't know if that's true. All right. Now, um, as you guys might know from Password, uh, the hit game show. Why am I even saying that? Everybody knows Password. Um, let's do a lightning round. So I've heard some stirrings about something called like a North American Soccer League starting. Um, soccer is obviously the sport of the future. I mean, this is 1967. So, you know, by 1976, you know, the U.S. will win the World Cup. And, you know, what's, do the, we, what's the World Cup? It's a big soccer tournament. I'll, I'll tell you after the show. Okay. Um, do we think that this North American Soccer League, will that kind of knock this football stuff, this American football stuff, off of our TV screens and I our radios? I still – call me crazy. I still say the future is high lie. I think that the <laughs> fastest sport known to man is going to – you know, the outdoor sports, horse racing, football, of course, baseball, the supremacy of baseball will never be challenged. Is it really likely that another outdoor sport will – take the national imagination plus with closed circuit technology and paramutual betting i believe that a high lie will be the sport of the future mm -hmm. i think that soccer if it really if it takes a close look at the super bowl it has a shot and the reason it has a shot is the halftime i want to go back to the halftime show because if soccer can bring in and i haven't watched much soccer but it sounds like if a sport wants to get off the ground in in america You've seen these Pete days, i've seen Pete gogolak i knew he played that soccer game they had pigeons at halftime, like 300 pigeons. That was awesome. They had the uh, Bell Rocket Airman. And if that guy could come into every game, I don't care what the sport is, you get a lot more fans. So I think the cues that football is sending to the other leagues to get their, their entertainment value up um, were important from, from, this, from this Kansas City Chiefs game. All right. Let's just uh, let's leave the world of football and go to the world of pop music. What do you think will happen first? The Beatles will break up. 
or the monkeys will break up. Go ahead. What? Where was Daydream Believer on the chart again? Well, Day, I, I Day, Daydream Believer here. is about to be. I'm a believer. You're screwing up your Daydream Believer. What are you, what, what are you watching that girl? You're not watching the monkeys? <laughs> the most compelling show on television. These guys have got it all. Pleasant Valley Sunday. <laughs> Maybe you should go to Stefan. <laughs> they are outsell. They are on pace to outsell the Beatles and the Rolling Stone combined. By the way, here's Mike from the future in 1967. That actually happened. <laughs> <laughs> All I know is that Davy Jones is a dream bit. You got that right. I'm a Mickey doll. Although I don't fan. like how they right. use like, him. I on... like the Ringo Starr sort of parallel. Yeah, <laughs> is that coincidental? The monkeys and the Beatles. All right, this is Josh from the future. Give the gift of Slate Plus to another Slate fan in your life, and they'll receive all the benefits of membership, ad-free podcasts, bonus podcast segments, access to our ambitious multi-part Slate Academies, and so much more. Stefan, if I had told you in 1967 that you could get bonus podcast segments, you would be very confused. I would. (laughs) Uh, But there's no wrapping required. Give Slate Plus today. Visit slate.com slash give plus. We all know the story of who invented basketball and when and where and how. James Naismith, December 1891, Springfield, Massachusetts, by hanging up two peach baskets in a YMCA school gym. But no one had ever heard Naismith actually describe his creation because no audio of Naismith was known to have existed. Last week came news of the discovery of a recording of James Naismith on a New York talk show in January 1939. The interview on WOR's We the People, hosted by a famous radio personality of the time, Gabriel Heater, is almost three minutes long. It is totally worth listening to in its entirety, so let us do that now. Tomorrow night, 15,000 cheering fans will pack Madison Square Garden in New York City to witness a giant basketball doubleheader. In that cheering crowd, sitting in row C, seat 11, will be a modest 77-year-old man. Those fans won't know that he made possible the game they're watching. But you're going to meet him now. Sanka Coffee has brought him here tonight all the way from Lawrence, Kansas. Dr. James A. Naismith, the inventor of basketball. Dr. Naismith, how did you happen to invent basketball? Well, Mr. Heater, it was in the winter of 1891 when I was physical instructor at Springfield College in Massachusetts. We had a real New England blizzard. For days, the students couldn't go outdoors, so they began roughhousing in the halls. We tried everything to keep them quiet. We tried playing a modified form of football in the gymnasium, but they got bored with that. Something had to be done. One day I had an idea. I called the boys to the gym, divided them up into teams of nine, and gave them an old soccer ball. I showed them two peach baskets I'd nailed up at each end of the gym, and I told them the idea was to throw the ball into the opposing team's peach basket. I blew a whistle, and the first game of basketball began. And uh, what rules did you have for your new games, Dr. Naismith? Well, I didn't have enough, and that's where I made my big mistake. The boys began tackling, kicking and punching in the clinches. They ended up in a free-for-all in the middle of the gym floor. Before I could pull them apart, one boy was knocked out, several of them had black eyes, and one had a dislocated shoulder. It certainly was murder. (laughs) Well, after that first match, I was afraid they'd kill each other, but they kept nagging me to let them play again. So I made up some more rules. 
The most important one was that there should be no running with the ball. That stopped tackling and slugging. We tried out the game with those rules, and we didn't have one casualty. We had a fine, clean sport. Ten years later, basketball was being played all over the country. And in 1936, I saw it played for the first time at the Olympic Games. And the whole thing started with a couple of peach baskets I put up in a little gym 48 years ago. I guess it just goes to show what you can do if you have to. Indeed it does. The existence and discovery of this audio is fascinating enough on its own, not to mention James Naismith's voice. But what Naismith says is especially interesting because it confounds basketball's accepted creation story. And we're going to bring in two guests to talk about it. Joining us from Lawrence, Kansas, is the man who unearthed the Naismith recording, Michael Zagrai. He is an associate professor of religious studies, and he's writing a book about the influence of religion on Naismith's life. Hi, Mike. Hi. And joining us from Cornwall, Vermont, is Sports Illustrated senior writer Alexander Wolf. Alex has written extensively on the history of basketball, including a 2002 SI story about Naismith's original rules of the game. Welcome back to the show, Alex. Thanks so much. Mike Zagrai, first tell us how you found this recording and what you thought when you heard it for the first time. Well, I had uh, located a couple different references to the interview. One was in Bernice Larson Webb's uh, definitive biography of James Naismith called The Basketball Man. And I, and I found a secondary reference as well. So my graduate research assistant and I started to work to determine where uh, the uh, files or the archives of that particular show might be. And there are some old-time radio web sites where you know you can get uh, individual episodes but none of them had a full run we continued to search determined that the library of congress uh, had what apparently was a full run of the show and then began the process of locating and identifying verifying uh, that in fact was Naismith on the recording uh, went through the legal process to get the necessary permissions and then uh, was able to get a co- and then I was able to get a copy of the recording And the news here is that Naismith pretty much upends the story of how he invented the game, which was that he first created the rules, then he hung the peach baskets, and then he held the first game. In the recording, Naismith is pretty clear that even the foundational rule of basketball, no running with the ball, didn't exist before that first game, right? Yeah, that's actually rule number three if you look at the rules. So unless he um, changed the order of the rules, he, when he says he went in with a couple, that's, I mean, that, that fits because not, no running with the ball is, is number three. So it certainly is uh, different than uh, all the published accounts. So why should we believe um, this version of what Nate Smith says? He was an older man. Maybe he decided to change the you know, legend of how he had invented basketball. Like, how do we know what he said in the 30s is what happened in the 1890s? Well, I think that's part of the whole conversation. We don't know for sure. You know, there's not a definitive date still of when the first game occurred. There are uh, typically suggested to be three different dates. It's supposed to be in December of 1891. And, um, I mean, first of all, what's interesting about the recording is there was no known recording of him. So that's, 
significant in and of itself. Um, I personally would not say that this uh, in and of itself suggests that the other story is incorrect. The way that I look at it is that these sorts of things aren't necessarily always as, as clear-cut as they're presented, and that we may be seeing, or maybe hearing rather, uh, part of that uh, process, experimentation process, uh, being described in this account. The other thing I would say is it's a very, very brief account. Um, you know, all of the guests on that show were, I don't know if they timed them, but they were limited to very, very short uh, statements and you know it's it's likely that he was reading from a script so I guess what I would say is that maybe he is condensing down certain aspects of it in a form that he can present uh, completely in the time frame Alex what's the given your vantage point what's actually hearing his voice do for you well, it's it's a thrill to hear the voice. I was actually surprised there wasn't a little more of that Scottish brogue I remember reading about in books like uh, Bernice Larson Webb's great biography. Um, but I was also struck, as as Mike was, that this it sounded almost like a homily that he was delivering. I mean, Naismith was a circuit-riding preacher, and I completely buy the original creation story still, because... Naismith himself propagated it. He just didn't do it with this tidy little two- or three-minute WRR radio segment. He wrote in his book, Basketball, Its Origins and Development, which Bernice Larson Webb actually footnotes, he talks about having that moment, I've got it, where he snaps his fingers on the eve of that first game and says, ah, yes, we'll, we'll have no running with the ball because running leads to tackling and tackling leads to the scourge of rugby and football, which is the roughness and all. So basically, Naismith is contradicting himself here, and my inclination is to believe all these other times he told that origin story, which includes the, the book that he wrote um, when he was presumably a younger man. I mean, also, there are anecdotes about him being a little bit doddering in his old age. He would drive from his home in Lawrence over to campus and then walk home forgetting that he'd driven and marooned the car on over by his office. I mean, things like that, which suggests that, that perhaps he didn't have all his marbles with him. Although well, I've, done, I've done that on occasion. <laughs> I, I, I guess I would, I would kind of come back to more of a middle position where I agree with Alex. He's, he's correct in what he says about uh, Webb quoting from Naismith's book. I myself have uh, a number of very, very early accounts, uh, several of which are available online in Springfield College's digital collection. So I think that um, I agree with Alex when he says that the published story that Naismith presented was crystallized early on, because there are very early accounts that uh, do uh, corroborate this original narrative. Having said that, you know, in, lo in listening to him and going back and reading all these different accounts, I do find it interesting that there are elements of the creative process, such as people getting injured, such as trying test versions of games, that are also listed, you know, that are, that are included in these accounts. So I think that, you know, there are certain aspects of it that are not uh, entirely clear. Some of, even, even some of the most careful accounts are, are not clear as to whether or not he was working on this the night. He talks about working on it the night before. 
before, but he also talks about, you know, typing the beginning, the rules in the morning and the timeline doesn't necessarily always match. He talks about seeing Frank Mahan, the first player who was from North Carolina, but there, are, and, and then there are other accounts, uh, uh, eyewitness accounts from two of the players who say that he approached them before he even went into the gym and asked them to be captains of the sides, Duncan and Patton. So I agree with what Alex is saying, other than the, I, I, it's truly he perhaps that his, his health was failing and that sort of a thing. He also is known at an, at an advanced age to have jumped up on his hands and done handstands down the hall at Strong Hall. So, you know, he was somebody who took very good care of himself. I think that um, I don't know necessarily that I would say that, that, that at that point, you know, we're listening to a guy who's, who's lost his marbles. It may be that we're listening to someone who's trying to, trying to, I suppose, uh, please or do what the radio host is asking by trying to, to condense it down. But, um, I guess I, I guess I would take a little bit of a, a little bit of a more middle of the road view of it. And I just wanted to ask you, obviously, as was the style of the time, there is perhaps overhype in the announcer. They will not know that this humble man who sits among them. But what was the general conception of who James Naismith was? Is it as was it as uh, well known to basketball fans that he was the inventor of the game? Or back then, was there something of a Kansas New York nexus because it was invented that well invented in Springfield and bl- blossomed in Kansas, but Madison Square Garden was the hub and maybe nationally people didn't know about basketball so if you could just take me back to the time of the recording and give me a sense of how um well-known Naismith was well I think he he was known as the founder but the game is starting certainly into the 30s it's becoming so professionalized and Fog Allen has a big part of that in the games in Madison Square Garden you mentioned I mean there was this huge effort in 36 to send him to Berlin for the Olympics to see his sport his invention um, being introduced there. And I think there was a, a day where at every college basketball game that particular day, every high school game, a penny from every ticket sold went into some pot to pay his way. So he was seen as this kind of, this paternal figure over the game. But characters like Fog Allen uh, and Hank Lucetti and, and all these other stars that the media, particularly in New York on the East Coast, made, we're, we're beginning to take over people's imagination. And I should remind everybody that basketball was way down the pecking order at that time as a sport. Um, it, it, it was far behind things like boxing and horse racing and baseball. So, so Naismith is a sort of background figure in a sport that's still pretty obscure. And that, that tends to be the case with a lot of inventors, whether it's board game inventors or inventors of sports. And what makes Naismith interesting is, I think, uh, along the lines of what you're researching, Mike, which is that he was the embodiment of this idea of muscular Christianity at the turn of the century. He really did disdain violence in football and rugby and similar sports. And he did want to create a game that would minimize brutality. So the recording becomes interesting, I think, because on the one hand, he's saying, you know, he's allowing the boys to play this game that triggered terrible brutality in its first iteration. But at the same time, the idea of a creation story is something that while we love in popular culture, isn't always founded. So where, Mike, do you put um, the importance of this, the sort of muscular Christianity and having a game that was 
fair and and not violent fit into Naismith's life? And how did he view how basketball evolved? Well, um, you know, first of all, I would say that, that it, it's not necessarily that he disdained the violence of football because he himself was a football player. And in fact, as Amos Alonzo Stagg, the captain of Springfield College, said when they would go up against teams, powerhouses of the time like Army, he said something to Naismith like, the reason I play you at center is because you can do the most ungentlemanly things in the most gentlemanly manner. You know, he was a he was a he was a uh, an excellent athlete himself, and it wasn't that he was against the violence. Of course, there was a movement, including Teddy Roosevelt, right, to try to to try to uh, limit the, the the serious violence that was occurring in the football games. And, and the reason I'm bringing that up is because yes, he is, in my view, someone who was able to express his ideals throughout his life. His religious beliefs informed him throughout formed his choices in life and 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 everything that he did virtually and so he was certainly someone who um, adhered to what we now call what scholars now refer to as muscular Christianity. Many people didn't call it that themselves at the time. What they would say is they would talk about character development. Luther Gulick, Naismith, they would talk about developing the character of young men. And of course, when they said character, they meant Christian character. Um, and remember that muscular Christianity arises out of a context in Victorian England when people are concerned that the offspring of the upper class are uh, becoming weak and physically weakened. And there's a concern that with expanding colonial empires, these young men will need to be fit physically so that they can uh, perform the duties of, of, of colonial officers or policemen or that, that sort of a thing. And then, of course, Teddy Roosevelt becomes a proponent of it in the United States. So it's the idea that you can be strong, you can, you can participate, you can, you can, if necessary, fight, but that you, you uphold a certain uh, level of behavior. And he himself, I think, was presented in this way to the public. In other words, he's always been presented as this figure that's slightly removed from uh, normal life and, and, and who was, was kind of bumbling in this regard and who went against the grain in, in, in another regard. In other words, he wouldn't make money off of his invention. But I think that for Naismith himself, my research suggests very strongly that, that time and time again in his life, he went out of his way to perform the task that he believed he was given or that, that that was his call in life, which was, as he says on his application to the YMCA, to win men for the master, to win men for God. So, I, and you know, another thing I wanted to say, too, is if I might, is, is I wanted to, Alex was talking about the significance of Naismith, and Alex's book, Only a Game, he does a great job, I think, of going and talking about really the global significance of this game. And, 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 and even though Naismith himself is kind of a figure off to the side often, it's, it's amazing to sit back and really think about the, the influence that he's had historically and globally. And, and I think Alex does a, Alex in his book does a great job of talking about some of the different contexts where that's the case. Alex, last thoughts on, on the audio and the topic of Naismith. Yeah. The, um, Mike's point about, uh, about how the game spread. It really was astonishing. They play the game right before Christmas in 1891. 
the exact day maybe we're not sure of, but these players then scatter, and they're talking about it. This guy, Frank Mahan, goes down to North Carolina, um, and then they're all trained as missionaries, so they're headed off to these far-flung points around the world with this game. So within a decade, uh, the game's in China already by the early 1900s. So, um, yeah, in this indirect way, Naismith has planted these seeds all around the world, and you know, we see Chris stops Porzingis out there for the Knicks, um, and who knows however many other exotic NBA players. It, it all can be traced back to the fact that these were missionaries who played in that first game. What I wouldn't give for James Naismith to sit down with Kristaps Porzingis and have a conversation about basketball. All right, gentlemen, it would be better if Porzingis sat down just to... Just for, <laughs> to get closer, yeah, yeah, probably a good idea. All right, Michael Zagre, thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be on your program. Mike's an associate professor of religious studies. He's writing a book about the influence of religion on James Naismith's life. Alex Wolf, thank you, too, for joining us. Thank you, guys. Always fun to be with you. Alex Wolf is a senior writer for Sports Illustrated. He wrote a piece in 2002 about James Naismith's original rules. He's also the author of Big Game, Small World, and this year, The Audacity of Hoop, Basketball, and the Age of Obama. Make holiday shopping easier with the Slate Gift Guide, a curated collection of products selected by Slate editors and writers. These are the things that most improved our lives this year, wrapped up in one guide for you. Find something for everyone on your list at picks.slate.com. Now it is time for our last blast from the past. The movie Creed is not in the past, but it's fantastic, and you should all go and see it over the holidays. See Creed, do not see concussion. See Creed, do not see concussion. See Creed, do not see concussion. Uh, Creed is a reboot of the Rocky franchise. It stars Michael B. Jordan as Apollo Creed's son, Adonis, and has uh, Sylvester Stallone playing an older Rocky Balboa who serves as Adonis's trainer. Playing an older Rocky Balboa is not a new thing for Stallone. In 2006, he wrote, directed, and starred in another reboot of the franchise. Um, that movie was called Rocky Balboa. The premise was that Rocky had been retired for a couple decades, running a restaurant, hanging out with Polly, And in this universe... ESPN runs a computer simulation of what a match would look like between Rocky and then-champion Mason the Line Dixon, played by Antonio Tarver. That's right, Stefan, Mason the Line Dixon. Here's a clip from that virtual fight in which the boxers are rendered in a goofy-looking CGI. Now, let's go to a virtual arena and the opening bell. Dixon on Mozart Balboa. Rocky has no answer. Balboa is eating jabs. He's bound forward. Combination after combination raining down on Balboa. Oh, a jarring move by Balboa. Now Dixon is done. He is winning. He is almost out on his feet. Balboa turning up the heat. The computer says the Philly slugger Rocky Balboa would be triumphant <laughs> reigning champion Mason Dixon in a 15-round decision. So inevitably, this virtual fight leads to a real fight. And spoiler alert from nine years ago, Mason Dixon wins in a narrow split decision. But Balboa earns respect because this is a Rocky movie after all. I reviewed this movie back in 2006, but I didn't realize that this premise was based on a real thing that happened. Well, a, a real fake thing. 
a virtual matchup between undefeated heavyweight champion Rocky Marciano and the then undefeated Muhammad Ali. To tell the story of the Marciano-Ali fight, I have to back up a little bit and tell the story of the all-time heavyweight championship of the world, a series of simulated fights on the radio. Sports Illustrated's William Johnson wrote a story about that series, which was recorded and broadcast in 1967, the same year as the first Super Bowl. Um, You're going to like the lead of this article, Stefan. Here we go. As all of us with a vested interest in the human condition should know, the innards of a computer are not but a banal gnarl of electronic glands and itty-bitty wire ganglia, roughly the size of, say, a healthy colony of streptococci. (laughs) I just love the classic sports writing. Uh, The story continued. No one has had as much sport with computers as a genial, portly radio announcer turned promoter named Murray Warner. He is the man who has answered the question, can a brash young paperboy from the Bronx rise from a job as a staff announcer in a tiny coal mining town in Kentucky to become the broadcasting czar of computerized sports events with his own small office, meager staff, and eensy-weensy studio over a bank in a suburban Miami shopping center? The answer is yes. Really, we've all asked that question so many times. Can a brash young paperboy from the Bronx rise from a job as a staff announcer uh, to have a studio over a bank in a suburban yeah. Miami shopping center? It's, it's, every, the, it's every, every young man's dream. Yeah. It's pretty much the equivalent of why they take so many clothes on a three-hour cruise. So many comedians have warmed over that territory. <laughs> in a less flowery article published in something called The People's Almanac, David Wallachinsky and Irving Wallace explain that Warner got some boxing experts together and they broke the sport into 58 factors, including speed, courage, susceptibility to cuts, and killer instincts. He seems they very scientific. <laughs> <laughs> they sent those factors to 250 experts and they all ranked the sport's top fighters. I think that... Uh, courage. Yeah. John L. Sullivan, 10. Courage, 10. 10. Yeah. They reviewed old footage to get a sense of the fighter styles. They conducted interviews with boxers who are still living to get a, a quote, punch-by-punch story of each fighter's bouts for his five best years. They then deposited their mountain of data at the feet of their computer man, Henry Henry Meyer. He isolated himself in a Miami hotel room and began to design a program. The hotel room near the suburban (laughs) shopping mall? It's all within driving distance. Did he pay the rate for a single cot or did he have to pay extra for the ganglia? (laughs) <laughs> Ganglia costs extra. Yeah. Pets are allowed. The NCR 315 was impressive for its time, uh, which is the computer that they used. It had 160,000 memory positions. It took 18 months to run these simulations, which included a deterioration factor so that the fighters lost a tiny bit of energy on e- each punch. Mm-hmm. They then brought in a veteran boxing announcer named Guy LeBeau to call the action dramatizing what was just a round-by-round printout, a list of punches. So here's what one of those radio matches sounded like. This was a fight between Muhammad Ali and the German Max Schmeling. No tie-up, no let-up. Clay takes a right to the body. They go in close. Clay pumps against Max's ear again. Schmeling hooks hard to the head. Seconds only remaining. And when this fight is over, you can bet 
The rafters here in Miami Convention Hall will ring. Clay is at the track again with a left jab to the mouth, a left jab to the face by Clay. Clay hooks the head with two hands, darts away from Schmeling's return. They exchange jabs again. Schmeling comes welling in, and Clay takes off with a jab to the head, a jab to the face. There's the bell! Exciting! That's the, like one of the best fake boxing matches I've ever heard. I was rooting for the American. I was rooting against the Nazis. A lot was riding on that fake fight. <laughs> the fighters apparently really got into this. Um, Joe Lewis, who did actually beat Max Schmeling that time in that fight that people cared about, um, a newspaper account reported that Lewis sat in front of a radio and sweated as he kept dropping Jess Willard in the 15th round. Stay down, Jess. Please stay down, said Lewis. I'm getting so tired. How old was he at the time? <laughs> Dementia pugilistica rears its ugly head. Yeah. The all-time plus, plus heavy... susceptibility to cuts. <laughs> the all-time heavyweight tournament, which featured 16 fighters, was broadcast to 380 radio stations. It earned more than $3 million in ad revenue. The championship fight between Rocky Marciano and Jack Dempsey, won by Marciano, brought in 16 million listeners with the real fighters listening along in a simulated gym setting in Los Angeles. Marciano was awarded a belt valued at $10,000. What's a simulated gym setting mean? <laughs> it means that they were in a radio studio with like a heavy bag. Okay. All right. You're with us. Murray Warner followed that up with an all-time middleweight tournament, which was even more successful. It brought in $4.5 million and ad, 650 radio stations. Just the growth, you know, it's, yeah. it's yeah. impressive. Time Magazine called it the all-time most successful independently produced radio series ever. Uh, Warner's efforts were written up uh, in newspapers across the country. Here's one of my favorite accounts. Warner and his staff have tramped the world seeking fight information to gorge the voracious computer. They have been to North Af Africa to translate newspaper accounts of Marcel Serdan's early flights. Other firsthand observations were obtained in Europe and Asia. Not since the finding of Dr. Livingston has such tenacity been shown. I must confess, I don't know if they went to North Africa to translate newspaper ac accounts, but it's clear that a lot of this is made up. A lot of it is hype. Uh, the announcer, LeBeau, as we heard a minute ago, did a, a good job creating a lot of something out of a whole lot of nothing. He went so far as announcing which celebrities, including Martha Ray and Martin Balsam, yeah. were in fake attendance at the fake fights. Did he Did he have them marrying and having a kid <laughs> with excellent dentures? Um or is that Martha? I always get confused with Martha Ray and Martha Reeves and the Vandellas. I think Martha Ray was a TV funny woman. I think you're right. Yeah. But uh, I, I'm going to also doubt that they really went to Africa just based on the fact that there probably was a gym on the same block as the recording studio and they fake that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but people seem to like it. I mean, they were giving people what they wanted to hear, which were these classic uh, fights that never existed. What, who, Mike, who would deny people the opportunity to hear Muhammad Ali fight Max Schmeling? It certainly, certainly I don't believe you would. No, I would not. <laughs> Thank you for that affirmation. For some more uh, breathlessness, here is that flowery Sports Illustrated piece again by William Johnson. The actual taping of the finished broadcast is done in shadowed secrecy. Warner has been adamant about taking extreme security precautions to conceal the results of his computer fights. For example, the tapes are shipped direct to bank vaults. I don't know that bank vaults, uh, you know, 
I guess you just drop it right in there. Mm -hmm. um, Western Union security safes were also used. They're not delivered to broadcasting stations until an hour or two before airtime. LeBeau, the announcer, also claimed that he was offered $50,000 by certain mysterious sources to reveal the outcome of the heavyweight tournament. So was there gambling on the fake fights? Bets were not accepted at actual like casinos. I did read that, but you know, I'm sure that in the kind of fake, action. yeah, in the fake back rooms of of many <laughs> fake gyms, there was a lot of action on these. Uh, so yeah, that fifty thousand dollar offer, you can choose to believe that or not. Maybe it happened. So you guys may have noticed Muhammad Ali was not in the final of that all time heavyweight tournament. It was Marciano versus Dempsey. Uh, Muhammad Ali was very pissed about this. Now. Again, I don't know if he was actually pissed or was just pretending to be pissed uh, as as part of the pre-fake match hype. But as The Guardian's Sean Ingle documents in a great history of the Marciano-Ali fight, he's got the best account of this. Ali sued Murray Warner for a million dollars for defamation after he lost to Jim Jeffries in the quarterfinals of the radio tournament. Ali called Jeffries history's clumsiest, most slow-footed heavyweight. Uh, now, as you probably guessed, they decided to settle things in a way that was financially remunerative for all parties. Warner offered Ali— Not for Jim Jeffries. <laughs> Poor gentleman Jim. Deceased, deceased gentleman Jim. Did Jeffries fight barefisted against Ali? <laughs> was he one of the— I think, I think I, he was. I don't know. I think we might be confusing him with gentleman Jim Corbett. <laughs> That's possible. Speaking of barefisted, you see where we could take these fake fights. <laughs> <laughs> do you hear? Do you, you know where I'm going with this, right? Where are you going with this? A bear! Fight a bear! <laughs> Ali, wasn't Max Schmeling known as the German bear? Or maybe that was Max Bear? Yeah, Max Bear. No, he was known as the German Schmeling. <laughs> Jim Jeffries was known as the Boilermaker. He was not, in fact, a, a gentleman. He was a powerfully built and athletic teenager, though. Yeah. Okay, back back to the subject at hand. Werner offered Ali $9,999. I'm not sure why it was not $10,000, but it was $9,999 to do a simulated fight against Rocky Marciano to determine the true, fake, all-time heavyweight champion of the world. This one would be on film, not just on radio, broadcast one time only in movie theaters nationwide, January of 1970. Ali and Marciano agreed, and the fight was on. Wait, 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 but Ali was knocked out in the quarterfinals. That was the radio tournament. Ali didn't fight well on radio. Everybody knows that yeah. Ali's style did not translate to radio. So Ali was looking for a match. Here's the kind of context of this is he had been denied a boxing license in every state to fight actual boxing matches in front of actual people um, because of his refusal, refusal to fight in the Vietnam War. Ali was undefeated at the time. He had no actual boxing matches on his record between his March 1967 knockout of Zora Fali and his October 70 comeback against Jerry Quarry. So this fight against Marciano was the closest his fans got to seeing him in the ring for more than three years. Now, Marciano, for his part, he had not fought in 13 years. He had retired undefeated 49-0 in 1956. The Guardian wrote that retirement had been better for his wallet than his waistline, the energy burnt with women other than his wife, a timid counter to his binges on rich Italian food and lack of exercise. Marciano trained hard, though. He took the fake fight seriously. He lost 50 pounds. He bought a new toupee. But he was still 45 years old. He looked 45 years old, paunchy, past his prime. 
Ali was just 27, so this would not be a fair fight if there was actually a fight. But before we get to what happened in the actual non-actual fight, I want to play the barbershop scene from Coming to America, which discusses such an age disparity in reverse. What about Rocky Marciano? Oh, there they go. There they go. Every time I start talking about boxing, a white man got to pull Rocky Marciano out their ass. That's the one. That's the one. Rocky Marciano. Rocky Marciano. Let me tell you something wonderful. Rocky Marciano was good. But compared to Joe Lewis, Rocky Marciano ain't shit. He bit Joe Lewis's ass. <laughs> That's right. He did whoop Joe Lewis's ass. Joe Lewis was 75 years old when he fought. I don't know how old he was, but he got an ass whooped. Joe Lewis had come out of retirement to fight Rocky Marciano. The man was 76 years old. Joe Lewis always lied about his age. He lied about his age all the time. One time, Frank Sinatra comes out here and sat down in this chair. And I said, Frank, you hang out with Joe Lewis. Just between me and you, how old is Joe Lewis? You know what Frank told me? He said, hey, Joe Lewis, 137 years old. 137 years old. <laughs> that movie freaking holds up. <laughs> so for, for the record, Joe Lewis was not, in fact, 137 years old. He was 37 years old. When he got TKO'd by Marciano, while The Rock from Brockton, a.k.a. the Brockton blockbuster, was a mere 28. Uh, but back to Ali versus Marciano, the 27-year-old versus the 45-year-old. They filmed for three days in Miami in 1969. They sparred for 71-minute rounds. The material was then spliced together based on how our trusty NCR computer determined the fight would play out. Can I just ask, is the NCR computer better than the Smedley 4 <laughs> computer from uh, John Goldfarb, Please Come Home? <laughs> that would be an all-time fight. Just put them in the center of like a server room four, yeah. and just let them bleep and bloop against each other. All right. So according to Rocky Marciano's brother, Peter, the two legendary fighters got along. They chatted in between these rounds. Here's a clip of Peter Marciano talking about that. There was turbulence going on in this country with the black-white thing. Uh, there was Vietnam. It was it was troubled times uh, in this country. And obviously, when these guys got in the ring, they would get a break. And I remember one time where the two of them were in a corner, actually sitting down on the floor, and they were sharing, literally sharing, a grapefruit. Rocky was peeling it, broke it open, gave half to Muhammad Ali. And their conversation, you might think, would tender around boxing. Or, it was all about this country, all about the black-white situation. It was all about the troubled times and, and what they could do as two guys that I'm sure a lot of people looked up. What could they do to make things a little bit better for this country? Yes, the legendary Grapefruit Accords between Rocky Marciano and uh, Muhammad Ali solved all of America's problems. So they finished filming. Everything was wrapped. And then three weeks later, Rocky Marciano was killed in a plane crash. Uh, he was in a private plane, a Cessna, and crashed. He died on August 31st. 1969, just before he turned 46. So this was the last time anybody would see Rocky Marciano on film. It was his last fight, albeit not a real fight. You know, I, I need to keep uh, keep emphasizing that stuff. <laughs> this was not a real fight, in case I haven't said that 400 times already. The fight was screened in movie theaters in January 1970. And again, there was like all of this hype, most of it probably, you know, as real as the boxing match was. The El Paso News wrote, the results are more of a secret than was the atomic bomb in 1946. Actually, I don't think that was in 1946. Wait, good fact-checking, El Paso News. 
<laughs> it will be delivered to the theater or hall where it is to be shown by bonded messenger some 30 minutes before the fight is scheduled. Uh, the People's Almanac wrote that an estimated million fans paid $5 each for, uh, to watch it in America, and some 15 million more watched it in England, Australia, and Mexico. Hey, cheaper than the Super Bowl. There you go. On, again, the 20th of January, 1970, The Guardian writes that it was shown in 1,000 cinemas across the U.S. and 500 more in Canada, Mexico, and Europe. Let's listen to the beginning of the super fight, Rocky Marciano versus Muhammad Ali. And now this all-time heavyweight championship fight ready to go. There's the bell, and here's Guy LaBeau. Rocky Marciano, Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay, and this, the classic championship fight. Uniquely, the two only undefeated heavyweight champions of the world. I'm rather staggered by the size proportions. Marciano, about 5'11". Cassius Clay, about 6'3", perhaps a little bit more. Marciano is the shortest man that Cassius has fought. And Marciano is looking at the tallest man he has ever boxed. Marciano's immediate target is to take some of the speed out of the legs of Muhammad Ali. That left-hand jab scored for Muhammad Ali. He doesn't like to be caught on the ropes, and that's where Marciano wants him immediately. So that was the great guy, LeBeau. Strangely quiet about whether Martha Ray and Martin Balsam were in mm-hmm. attendance at this fight. So you I, guys have some, watched... I have some Martha Ray facts. Uh, you, okay. you, you turn to me whenever you need them. Uh, I need them right now. Okay, Martha Ray was married one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times. Among her husbands were Bud Westmore, who was a makeup uh, genius, David Rose, who wrote uh, songs including The Stripper, Rose was also a live steam hobbyist with his own backyard railroad. She married a hotel executive. She married a policeman. She married a couple dancers. For Martha Ray, lust turned into love quite instantly. And then her last husband was Mark Harris, who was uh, featured prominently on the Howard Stern Show for many years as a parodist. He wrote the song, I'm a Gay Papa. He was gay while married to Martha Ray. He proudly admitted that. And now, even though he's a political parodist, he's uh, very right-wing and writes pro-Trump songs. These some of the loves of Martha Ray. Martha Ray, politically conservative. Quote, I am a Republican because I believe in the Constitution, strength in national defense, limited government, individual freedom, and personal responsibility as the concrete foundation for American government. I also believe in being married to a gay man. Yes. <laughs> there's a there's a lot of subtext going on in this fight. So <laughs> you guys you guys have watched the footage. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of hard to exaggerate, like, how not real this looks. <laughs> they uh, – how, how do you feel about Rocky Marciano's toupee, first of all? Wait, you really think it looks that not real? I think for the time, I was actually surprised by the fact that, you know, at a glance it looked real. It looked like Rocky Marciano is not a professional fighter, let alone one of the greatest of all times without a propensity for being cut. And Muhammad Ali dances around him. I think it's kind of fascinating. My gangly I guess I'm being ungenerous for the time. You for are, the time. for the time. I mean, yeah. Rocky's got the dad bod, and if they did that today, they would. Uh, there'd be some digital enhancement to his physique. Uh, the most off-putting part for me is that there's no, there's no audience. Yeah, it's like filmed in like a black with a black backdrop. Black, yeah, black. smoky black backdrop. That's where that's yeah. where Stallone got the idea for the match at the end of Rocky Two. Yeah, this was this flight had to be held in secrecy, Stefan, because yeah. oh, uh, true. 
Don't forget about the bonded couriers. Forgot about the bonded couriers. I do love that the referee is sort of the classic referee. Looks like he's about 68. (laughs) He's got those giant black glasses. So that's Jack Dundee, who is Angelo Angelo Dundee's brother. Wow. Wow. Angelo Dundee Dundee was available. He served as Ali's corner man in the fight. So that seems like maybe a conflict of interest. And in a very odd nod to the future, Paul Hogan was spotted at ringside. Paul Hogan, of course, best known as Crocodile Crocodile Dundee. Yes, thank you. (laughs) So I had never seen Rocky Marciano fight before. I don't know about you guys, but he has a very I don't think that's count. I still think you haven't (laughs) seen it count. (laughs) I had never seen Rocky Marciano before. uh, Either pretend to fight or fight for real. He has a very strange style where he looks like He's very pronounced crouch. Yeah. Loves the loves going in with the left. And he really is tiny compared to Muhammad Ali. The uh, Guardian described him as looking like an undersized hoodlum from Dick Tracy, mm. which I think is a good description. Yeah. So Muhammad Ali's reach was 82 inches. Marciano is only 68. He's kind of trying to punch Ali in the body. Ali is dancing around as he does, sticking and moving, sticking and moving. Let's move along to uh, later in the fight. I think this is the eighth round. Marciano keeps the target in sight down below. A good look right here why these are the only two undefeated champions in the world. Clay Wilson, oh, a knockdown, and Marciano down for a brief count. He appears all right. He will take the mandatory eight count. It looked like a right to the jaw, but it was set up by a couple of shots to the body. So remember susceptibility to cuts, Mike? You're really a fan of susceptibility to cuts. (laughs) Yes, STC, my favorite stat. So Marciano was extremely susceptible to cuts during his career. He was undefeated, but he almost had three different fights stopped because of his susceptibility to cuts. He was not the Bayonne bleeder, though. He was not the Bayonne bleeder. He could have been the Brockton bleeder. Mm. So in this fight, the computer determined that Rocky Marciano was going to get cut the fuck up. Um, he's like bleeding all over the place. And by blood, I mean ketchup. They used ketchup to simulate the blood on uh, Rocky Marciano. And it just gets worse and worse as the fight goes on. Have you seen uh, Wild at Heart, the scene with uh, Diane Ladd, where she completely covers her face with lipstick? Oh, yeah. yes. And yes, gets yes. nominated for an yeah, Academy yeah, Award? Yeah, yes. That's what Rocky Marciano looks in this fight. And at the end of each round, the film cuts and you get the like and you get the kind of dot matrixy readout of um you know who won the round and why and the chirons stay on the screen for like a nanosecond you can't read what uh what's on the screen so you know one of them for example says like zero knockdowns zero cuts zero injuries neither fighter hurt ali wins round volume of effective punches and ring generalship then it goes like Marciano, I cut minor. Ali wins round. Higher volume of effective punches. Marciano starts bleeding. <laughs> Marciano vision partially reduced. Some confusion shown. Marciano cuts eyes, nose. Ali arms now in pain. And I'm trying to be more generous now. I think you're right, Mike. This is like fan wish fulfillment. It's mm-hmm. fan fiction. It's filmed fan fiction. And um, I can imagine that's being exciting if you're watching it in a theater in January 1970. This is all obviously hype, but people wanted to see these guys fight. They were kind of fighting in a way, I guess, in a way that looked reasonably okay for 
back in the day. And then as Marciano mounts his comeback in the fight, spoiler alert, from 45 years ago, it gets exciting. Let's hear uh, what happens in round 13. Ali looks out of gas, taking shots down to the body for Marciano. The Rock with a solid right to the jaw that staggers him. A bazooka by Marciano. Ali offering just feeble resistance, but still going. Remarkable. And takes a solid right to the head that staggers him again. He may be going. Ali in deep, deep danger, trapped here against the ropes by Marciano. Relentlessly. A left by the Rock, and Clay is down. Here's the count. Three, four, five, six, seven. Very weak. Eight, nine, ten. Clay knocked out by Marciano. Apparently the Brockton blockbuster completely defused Muhammad Ali in the previous round. So in the Guardian piece, um, they quote Ali as saying he had watched the fight in a theater. The legend was that Marciano and Ali didn't know what the outcome was going to be. Ali said that computer must have been made in Alabama. (laughs) 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 Which is a good quote. Um, You notice that they keep calling him Clay. Mm. He had changed his name after um, the fight with Sonny Liston, uh, which was in 64. And they just keep calling him Cassius Clay kind of throughout the fight. I don't know if it was, you know, I don't, I assume it wasn't meant as like, we're going to, you know, mess with this guy. And this is like a obvious sign of disrespect. But um, they did certainly did not call him Muhammad Ali throughout the whole fight. There did seem to be a certain kind of affection for Rocky Marciano, who, uh, if, you know, boxing historians will say he fought during a weak era. He didn't, you know, obviously have the physical characteristics. He was 5'10 and 180 pounds compared to 6'3 uh, Ali at 210. I don't know if we want to reenact the barbershop scene here, but this this strikes me as slightly unrealistic and maybe like Caucasian wish fulfillment going on here. As a Caucasian, that is not my wish. <laughs> uh, speaking for, for Caucasians, Mike Pesca <laughs> says that is not his wish. Uh, Muhammad Ali called the fight a sham and a Hollywood fake, and he said that naturally, on the Dick Cavett show, mm-hmm. where such things were discussed. And coming up um, next, Martin Balsam. <laughs> and Martha Ray. Martha Ray and her seven husbands, <laughs> next, on the Dick Cavett show. So did Ali... So you're saying that they filmed two endings to the fight? Oh, they filmed more than two endings, more my friend. More than two endings. So there's a DVD, and again, legend, who the hell knows what it's true. The guy, Murray Warner, the promoter, was like, we're destroying every copy of this film except the one we're giving to the Library of Congress. Like, yeah, exactly. That's that's what happened. It was shown on TV, like, later. And now there's a DVD, which I bought. I watched the whole thing. The clips online, I wasn't able to find the whole fight online, but there's um, stuff on YouTube that um, we'll link to on our show page. But yeah, they filmed more than one ending because the fighters didn't know. I don't think Ali would have agreed to do this if he was like, yeah, you're going to get knocked out by Rocky Marciano. And round 13. Um, But on the DVD, they have one of the alternate endings, which I really, really wish they had shown. And that alternate ending is, you guessed it, Rocky Marciano unable to continue due to susceptibility to cuts. They actually had Jack Dundee, the ref, step in and stop the fight because Marciano was bleeding too profusely. In a fake fight, you always want to end it with like a referee stepping in and not allowing it to go to its fake conclusion. Susceptibility to cuts. So, you know, let's end all, let's wrap up all of our storylines. What happened to the NCR computer? 
Um, it went into the business of predicting actual fights. It picked Joe Frazier to lose to a guy named Bob Foster in a heavyweight title fight. Frazier actually uh, knocked out Foster in the second round after 49 seconds. The NCR was disgraced. It took its bolts and went home. When are they doing the uh, the Butterbean Gentleman Jim Braddock fight? Uh, I think that'll be coming up soon. I think uh, the NCR, we got to get that out of the Fire closet, again. get rid of the cobwebs. Thank you for your indulgence. Um, hope you guys liked the history show. Um, if you want to let us know if you liked it, you didn't like it, email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Please subscribe to Hang Up Listen on iTunes. You can find us by going to iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Hang Up and Listen. Our producer is Zach Dinerstein, and the executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Happiness can feel transcendent and abstract, but sometimes it's the little practical things that give us the biggest happiness boost. I'm Gretchen Rubin, author of the best-selling books, The Happiness Project and Better Than Before. Each week on my podcast, Happier, my sister Elizabeth and I talk about things big and small you can do to add more happiness to your everyday life. Things like the one-minute rule, the rule that any small task you can do in less than a minute, you should do without delay. Search for Happier with Gretchen Rubin. Onward and upward. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.